All right, so the book of Nehemiah is a book that is 13 chapters long, and I had to go through and go through and go through to not include all 13 chapters in this message. Um, so it starts off, uh, um, the Persian Empire had come in and had conquered Jerusalem and burned the temple and pretty much took all the captivities. There were a small group of people who stayed behind, but they were the poor people who they weren't afraid of building up an army and coming back after them. Um, Ezra, um, there's a book in the Bible also named Ezra. He was a counterpart with Nehemiah. He had come back to his, uh, Jerusalem about um, 40 years before Nehemiah, and Ezra had started the work on building the temple. And um, by the time we get to Nehemiah, the temple has been built. And um, we also see uh, that... The king in Persia at the time was King um, Artaxerxes, and he was favorable to the Jews. And part of that reason is because Queen Esther was his stepmom. So the influence that she had being queen um, impacted the book of Nehemiah. So it starts off with uh, Nehemiah asking about Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah 1, verses 4 through 11, it says, When I heard these things... Oh, he, he... let me back up a little bit and, and tell you a little bit. He, he sees someone that comes back from Jerusalem, and he asks them, hey, tell me about Jerusalem. How, how are things there? What's going on in Jerusalem? How, how is the city? Um, what's happening? And the report was not good. The report was very bad. So it says, when Nehemiah heard these things, he sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you are an exiled people, the farthest horizon, I will gather you from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servant who delight in reviving your name. Give your servant success today by granting them favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So what he hears are that the walls are broken down, that they are, the gates are burned with fire, and that Jerusalem lies in a disgrace. His response is he weeps, he fasts, he prays, And he reminds God of his promises. And I think that's so powerful here because all of us, you know, we don't know from one day to the next what news we're going to get that day. But even in the devastation that Nehemiah had heard, he reminded God of his promises. He clung to the hope that, that no matter how awful it looked, God had a promise. God had a plan. And he was not going to abandon his people. So... He, he simply ends his prayer 
um, by saying, grant me favor in the presence of this man. So being the king's cupbearer was kind of like being a butler. It was a very personal job. Um, He spent a lot of time with the king, and um, he, he took time to pray and fast, and yet he says, okay, God, I'm going to go stand before this man. And he didn't have a plan. He didn't say, God, I want him to do this and this and help him ask me this. And if he says this, he just simply allowed the burden of, of the disgrace of God's people to be on his heart, to pray and to say, okay, you know I'm going to be standing before the king today. So then he takes this next big step and he stands before the king. In Nehemiah 4, 1 through 9, it says, So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a date. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governor of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe contact until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel of the temple and for the city walls and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. And um, as I had read through this again, one of the things I had noticed in reading through different translations was that Nehemiah's going before the king and allowing the king to see his grief wasn't manipulation. It wasn't an act of him going, oh, well, if I act this way, maybe the king will do this. It was just obedience that his heart was touched and that he was going to honestly be vulnerable, possibly even lose his job if if things didn't go well. But just that that honesty that he had, that he was going to go before the king and he was going to allow the king to see his heart. Then we see in the middle there that he stops and he prays. He'd already prayed before. So I think he, he just was reflecting back. Okay, God, okay, I, I want you to lead me here and guide me. But he'd already taken that time to seek God. And so it wasn't just this quick prayer hoping that God would somehow zap wisdom into him. He'd already taken the time to really seek God's faith. He asks the king, and the king grants it. And I think that's amazing because I, when you read through the scriptures, I don't think he went in there with the idea that this is what I want. But I think in that moment, God said, okay, ask for this, and the king granted it. So he starts the long journey to Jerusalem, which is, 900 miles. So this would have taken about three months. He comes into Jerusalem, and he views the walls and the gates at night. In chapter 2, verse 12, it says, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. 
So he didn't come in and announce, hey, I'm your new governor. Um, you guys are going to, you know, we're going to build the wall. I'm going to tell you how to do it. He comes in. He doesn't tell anyone what he's doing. He doesn't say anything that God's put on his heart. At night, he goes around and he looks and he takes time to see what is going on. What does Jerusalem look like? And it was a mess. You know, as you read more in chapter two, he looks at all the different gates and, um, you know, it, it, it was it was a pretty big undertaking that he had, but he was faithful to go and view all of it. And in verse 17 and 18, he simply goes before the people the next day and he tells them, um, let's rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that it's not a disgrace. And he told them about the king, that the king had granted him favor and that God was with him and all that God had done. And the people responded and said, okay. And, you know, I think... When we look at the book of Nehemiah, uh, his ministry was marked with humility and piety, that he was a leader that went in with such humility. He didn't go in and tell the people, I'm going to do this and you're going to follow me. He went in as one of them and said, we're going to do this. What's even more impressive is that um, in Nehemiah 5, 14 through 19, it talks about how he purposed to not burden the people. It says, moreover, well, let me start a little bit further down. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, but the early governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not require any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. So not only did he not burden the people that were already in a weak state, but he took it upon himself to provide for all these people. The very end of that verse, it says, Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. That part really stuck out to me. You know, if, if you've ever had a time of just pouring into someone, maybe someone's grieving, they've had a loss, um, maybe someone's lonely, um, there's different times when, when you can just be there for people Sometimes you can pour in to the point where you're exhausted. You're feeling overwhelmed. This is a lot. And, and you can, my heart has gotten to the place where I'm looking around going, well, who, who's going to help me? Who's, who's going to provide for any of my needs? And here I see Nehemiah looking to God and reminding God, I am doing this, this care, this, this work, it's for you. And what he's also doing there is he's acknowledging that God will supply what he needs, that he doesn't allow the work that he's going through, all the effort, time, finances that he's putting in to discourage him from remembering, this is the work I'm doing for God. He's going to supply. Now we see him take the next step, and this is a big step to build the wall. I imagine it probably felt a little bit like holding your foot out over a great, big, huge cavern. 
and not knowing if your foot's going to reach the other side. This was a big step. This wall was two and a half miles around Jerusalem. It was 39 feet high, and it was eight feet deep. So this was a big wall. And part of the next step, whenever you have anything hard to do, difficult, I, I know recently I, I had a situation where there was something and I needed to, I needed to take action and I needed to do something, and I, I hate uh, confrontation. I hate trying to, um, having to, to talk about something that might be difficult. And so I even set a date. I'm going to do this by this day. The day came and I could not do it. I, 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 I thought, okay, I, I hate confrontation, but God, what's going on? So, um, God put someone on my heart. I had been praying the whole time. God, what should I do? What should I do? I'd been praying. And God put someone on my heart, and I called that person in and said, I just don't know what to do here. And they gave me great advice that gave me a clear direction to take that next step. And I, I just was so grateful. There are times when, when you face something and you don't know what to do, sometimes the best thing isn't to just leap ahead. If, if you feel like God's saying, wait, wait, please take that time to seek to seek him, to seek counsel from other people, to get a clear step, a clear clear view of what to do. So this job was so big and, and so impossible sounding, but this next big step was made so much smaller by the fact that each person started working next to their house. Whichever part of the wall was closest to their house, that's where they started working. And all kinds of people helped from the Levites and priests to just ordinary people, carpenters, women, everybody helped. It was a job that everyone was involved in. <clears throat> At one point, they got distracted, or, or they, excuse me, they had distractions come up. They did not get distracted. In Nehemiah 4, 1 through 9, it says, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed, ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite now remember this name, he, he'll come up later on, was at his side and he said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down the wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn our insults back on their own heads. Give them over as a plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of your builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls were going ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet his threat. So they had so much opposition that at one point they had to go to work 
with their tools and make sure that they had their weapons strapped on their side. And they didn't stop. That might have been enough to scare some of us to go, well, maybe when this cools down, we'll come back and we'll try again. But they didn't. They kept working. At one point, half of the people, there are already a small amount of people here that are working on this wall. Half the amount of people stop working to stand up and guard the people that are. And I thought this was such a beautiful picture of the church. It's so important to stay connected and involved in each other's lives, to be reaching out and talking to and checking on people, because we never know what's going on in someone's life, what struggle they're facing, what battle, what attack of the enemy that they are enduring. And as the church, our job is to let them know that they're not alone, that they have support, that whatever God has planned for them, that they can accomplish, and we're going to help them. We're not going to leave them to the attacks of the enemy. So after this, we come to a place where the wall gets finished. In 52 days, it gets finished, which is amazing. They had a lot of opposition, and even at one point, um, they were getting towards the end of finishing the wall, and, and these uh, Sanballat and Tobiah and this group of people that were their opposition, they send for Nehemiah, and they say, oh, we, we have a message, or we, we want to talk to you. Come meet with us. And Nehemiah refuses. No. Four times they sent messages, and he refused. And he said, why would I stop what I'm doing to come and meet with you? Um, then later on, we see someone comes up to Nehemiah and, and says, God told me that so-and-so is going to come and kill you. He's going to try to assassinate you. But if you go into the temple and you close the doors, they can't get to you. And uh, they tried to tempt him to sin because at this point, the temple, that part of the temple, was specifically for, for the priest to enter once a year. And so to go in the temple, no one would follow him because they'd be afraid. But they tempted him to sin, and pretty much Nehemiah told him, no, you're wrong. God said that's not true, and I'm not going to sin. So with all this opposition, they stayed faithful, they worked hard with all their hearts, and they finished the wall. So now, Jerusalem, that looked in such a disgrace when Nehemiah arrived, doesn't anymore. But he doesn't stop there. He takes another step. In verses 8, 1 through 3, it's, or chapter 8, 1 through 3, it says, Let all the people come together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. He read it out loud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So during this time of reading the law, they were actually celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a holiday um, that the Jews remembered uh, when the, their ancestors were in the wilderness for 40 years, and they lived in tents. And in that lowly estate that they were at, 
um, God provided for them, and he met them, and he provided them a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And even though they were in the wilderness, in these temporary dwellings and houses, God was with them. And so for the Feast of Tabernacle, for eight days, you sleep in a, a tent or a booth. It's a three-sided booth, and the top has branches. And it's meant to be a very temporal thing. It's meant to be uh, make you aware of the fact that this was not a, a, a home that was a foundation and solid walls. And it, it was uh, reminding of that time being in the, in the desert. And this is what when they started to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So they get to the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. And in verses uh, 9 through 12 of chapter 8, it says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of those, send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So when we go back to the reason why Jerusalem was in a disgrace in the first place, it was because they had stopped doing what God wanted them to do. They stopped reading his word. They stopped following the practices that he had given them. They stopped looking to him as, as their, their God and started bringing in other false religions and pagan gods and worshiping idols. So bringing them back to the place of reading the word was so powerful. He was looking at these people and saying, it's not enough that Israel doesn't look like a disgrace. We have to get the word back into them. We have to get back into them what God expects of us, who God is to us, and take time to really uh, let that sink into their hearts. So the people ended the Feast of Tabernacles rejoicing. They understood what God wanted them to do. They understood what brought them to this place of destruction in the first place. And they were able to go back home and celebrate their homes in a city that had a wall. But it doesn't stop there. <laughs> Have you ever been on a mountaintop experience where God has met you and spoke to you and done such a work in your heart, and then you go home? It can be exhausting. And that's what they did, I'm sure. They were, they were tired. They went home. They celebrated. But then they came back and they did it all over again. In chapters 9, 1 through 3, it says, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, feasting and wearing sack fasting and wearing sackcloth, and putting dust on their heads. Those of the Israelites' descendants had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day, and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Isn't that powerful? 
that they were willing to not just sit back and enjoy their their new city that had this beautiful wall, but they were willing to allow God's word to work on their hearts and to really cement who they were. They were his people. He had a plan for them to keep them from falling back to what had led to their destruction. So we see after this, in chapter 9, Ezra prays. And Ezra prays one of the longest recorded prayers in the Bible. Pretty much his prayer is just going back through the history of them leaving the wilderness, them um, or leaving Egypt, being brought into the wilderness, um, going into Jericho, the defeat of their enemies, the times when they didn't seek God and they fell away and they pushed his word to the side, and God being faithful to bring them back, promising to never abandon them. At the end of this prayer, in verse 38, it says, In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders and Levites and our priests are fixing their seals to it. So the people decided, we want to make a renewed covenant. We're going to go through and think about all that God has said to us and who we are and how he wants us to be, and we're going to sign it. We're going to have our, our, our priests sign it, the leaders sign it, and we're going to make this renewed commitment to God. So that happens. And at this point, or, or sometime around this time, between chapter, um, the end of chapter 9 and chapter, beginning of chapter 13, Nehemiah had been in Jerusalem for 12 years, and he needs to go back to Persia. Again, a 900-mile journey that took three months to get there, three months to get back. So in chapter 13, he's come back, and um, we see something interesting. During the time he was gone, Tobiah, one of the, the Ammonites, one of the chief people in opposition to this wall being built, becomes friends with Eliashib who was a priest. So the temple had been rebuilt, but the temple wasn't a fully functioning temple yet. The people had kind of laxed off on paying their tithes, which Nehemiah addresses. The Levites went home because there wasn't any provision for them. They had to abandon their posts and go work the fields. Um, Lots of things were happening, but the temple wasn't working the way it was supposed to. People weren't bringing their tithes in, and and when people are bringing their tithes in and everything is being supplied that the temple should have, there was a storeroom that Solomon built in the temple just for holding things that they would need in the temple. And Tobiah had asked Eliashib, the priest, if he could store his stuff in this room. So Nehemiah comes back and finds this. And I thought of an interesting example <laughs> if to, to relate this possibly to our times. If we had a governor, any governor of any state, um, call us and say, I noticed you have a pretty big church. And there might be some rooms in that church that you're not using. Can I put some of my campaign signs in there and just store them in there for and you know, until, I, until I'm running again? That would be ridiculous. No one would agree to that. But this is what happened in this situation. 
the person who was their enemy, who is against this wall being built, against Jerusalem being being a city, being a, a nationality that had a strong government, strong people, was actually using their sacred temple for his stuff. You know, I think oftentimes in our lives we have people that are ones that stir up controversy, whether that's a coworker or whether that's a family member when we get together that stirs up problems, if it's a friend that likes to gossip or create problems. Those are things that happen, and we deal with that. But whenever there is someone that is in opposition to something sacred in your life, you have to take a stand and say no. I would say those sacred things would be your time spent with God. If there is someone that always calls every time you pull out your Bible, and you know this is not someone who's going to be encouraging you in the Lord, you need to recognize and not give that person room. If in your marriage or your family there is a person that is getting in between or that is in opposition to that sacred union, you can't give them room. You have to shut the door. If your kids are suffering because you find you're giving yourself attention to so many other things, again, not the work of the ministry, not, not people who are going to encourage you and support you and build up your family, someone who is in opposition, you have to close that door. Do not allow them any room. Recently, I was at um, an embraced uh, retreat for, for women in ministry. It was a great time to just um, to be around people who can help me to better minister, to, to have a strong relationship with the Lord. Um, and those times are so important. Well, during this time, I'd gotten a text from someone who is not a Christian. None of you know who this is. But it, it was a very, very mean text, and it was meant to hurt. He, he thought about, how can I word this in a way to hurt? And it was difficult. At this time, when I'm being renewed and strengthened and encouraged and taught to get this text, it was painful. And I, I remember thinking, I can't think about that right now. Um, I, I just need to not, not focus on that. And I kept praying, you know, God, what should I do? No, I need to not, I need to not think about that right now. So I was already trying to like, okay, not, not the time. But I finally sent it to my husband. I said, look what I just got. He was so mad. <laughs> he said, block that number right now. He is not going to steal this time from you. You need it. Do not think about it. And it was so helpful to get that from him, it gave me the extra encouragement that I needed to recognize that I'm not going to give him this sacred time. He cannot have place in it. Going back to the um, Feast of Tabernacles, one of the things that they did was they had these group of, of plants that they would wave and hold, and it was a part of the ceremony. But there were four different kinds, and each one held a special significance. The first one was uh, a poem, and it bears fruit or deeds. But it's not fragrant. It doesn't have that spiritual blessing. 
This is like a person who lives by the letter of the law but does not have compassion or love for others. The myrtle only has fragrance. So it has that blessing that, oh, time in God's presence. I'm excited. I'm going to go out and this is great. But it can't bear fruit. This is a person who is so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. He or she may recite scripture but can't produce fruit. And then we have the willow. And the willow can produce neither fruit nor fragrance. And this is like a person who is intrigued by different doctrines, but they never produce fruit. They might like looking into things or studying or looking at, but they're not going to allow it to take root in their heart. They're not going to allow it to, to transform how they live. The citron creates both fruit and fragrance. This is like a faithful believer who lives a balanced life in wisdom before God and man. Believers should strive to be like the citron. And this was an excerpt taken from um, a book that we have, A Family Guide to Biblical Holidays, by Robin Sampson and Linda Pierce. And it's a, it's a great book because it, it brings out the truths that the Jews and their holidays that they were celebrating didn't understand as Jesus being the Messiah. And it brings him into that and makes clear those things that they followed without knowing the meaning. So I would just like to encourage each of you, um, as the worship team comes up, I believe you guys have a song that you can say, to just take time and to allow yourself to think, what type of a Christian are you? Do you have that excitement about God and you're ready to, to start your day with, woohoo, we're going to do something for the Lord, but there's no follow through? There's no fruit. There's nothing of growth. Are you a, a Christian that, that diligently is in the word and reading it? You can recite the scriptures, but you don't have that life. You don't have that joy and that love for others. Are you a Christian who doesn't have either one? Maybe you look at scriptures and religion and Christianity from a very stepped back point of view. Or are you a believer who has both the fragrance and the fruit to lead a productive life? As we, as we sing this song, just take some time to think about and ask God to show you, to allow him to speak to you. What's the next step that he wants you to take?